Well, tonight, if you would, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. What I've chosen to do is to take us through the book of 2 Peter. Ever since I started preaching through 1 Peter, it has always been my intention to go through both 1 and 2 Peter. I think it's good to study those together. And we have three chapters left in 1 Peter, and 2 Peter is three chapters. So we'll kind of go through them simultaneously, although I'm not sure that we'll end at the same time because in the evening services, as you know, and I think it's a good thing from time to time, like next week, we have a missionary speaker. In February, we have baptism membership. Um, Every once in a while, we get opportunities to have missionary speakers that we didn't anticipate were going to be available. And so... I will probably end 1 Peter somewhere around May or early June, 2 Peter somewhere around the same time, although, again, depending on special occasions, it might go a little longer. So that will be our concentration in the uh, evening services for the next few months. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, we read, Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Well, our first point tonight is an introduction. The book of Second Peter is often a neglected or forgotten book in our study of the New Testament. In fact, I was reading this week that 2 Peter and Jude are called by some the dark corner of the New Testament because they are often neglected by Bible students and sometimes rarely studied. But they are both very important books because both 2 Peter and Jude deal extensively with false teaching and false teachers. And sometimes we like to neglect that. We'd rather get to what we call, as human beings, the practical stuff. I'd rather, you know, study the more practical things. But, folks, we need to remind ourselves over and over again, and that'll be the thought tonight about false teaching. And the church ignores this epistle at its own peril. Peter wrote to help believers face a world filled with subtle spiritual deception. Now, here's kind of a summation of what is happening here in this book. Sensing that his own death was near, Peter wanted to remind his readers of the truth he'd already taught them so that those truths would continue to safeguard them after he died. He is sensing that his time on earth is about to come to an end. And so he reminds them of truths that he's already taught them. And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. He reminds them of things he's already said and already taught. And I don't know if you realize it, but much of the Christian faith is not learning new truths. It's reaffirming the ones we already know. 
and reaffirming those truths over and over and over again. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and we could certainly say that about the word of God, that the canon of scripture is closed, and we teach the word of God, and then we reteach it, and we reteach it, and we reteach it. So Peter knew the deadly threat of false teachers. And what Peter reminds us, what Jude reminds us, is so important to us, and that is that false teaching most often comes from within the church and not from without. And that is something that we have to relearn in every single generation, that false teaching most often arises from within the church, not from without the church. I'm going to give you a classic example tonight of the kind of things we're going to be looking at, the kind of truths we're going to be looking at in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You could turn there. Or it's going to be on the screen for us tonight. And this is what Peter says, just an example of what we're going to be looking at. He writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now he is writing to believers, and he is warning believers, and I want you to think very carefully with me tonight what he is saying. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Many, he says, many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They will exploit you with false words. And let us be reminded tonight that the threat of false teaching and false teachers is as real and dangerous today as it was when Peter wrote this letter. I wrote down some examples of things I just wanted to share with you tonight about our own day and age, and this list could be very long, so this is just a brief sampling of, of what is out there. Many of you, as you have grown up in your Christian life, as you have been in churches for years, we have constantly faced the threat of the false teaching from the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Very much along the line of what I shared with you this morning, that because God the Son is submissive to God the Father, some believe that he is inferior and not true God or not fully God, and something that both the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have taught, among other things that we would strongly disagree with. But we have constantly had to defend the deity of Christ, that Christ is fully God of God, that he is fully God with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. Some of you will remember that a few years ago, Rob Bell wrote the book Love Wins, 
which ignited a firestorm of debate all over the nation about whether or not there is a literal, real hell. And so again, we found ourselves defending the fact that the Bible teaches, though it is difficult, though it is hard, that the Bible teaches that there is a very real place of eternal torment and destruction called hell. Just this week, Randy Alcorn had an article encouraging pastors that even though we have made a lot of progress and won some victories in the pro-life movement, in the battle against abortion, we need to keep speaking out. We must not think that the battle is over because we have a long, long way to go. And then he quoted this statistic. He said, in the United States today, one in five abortions are performed on women who identify themselves as evangelical or born-again Christians. One in five abortions performed in the United States are performed on women from churches like ours, which reminds us as pastors and all of you who teach at all levels, we need to continue to teach the importance of the sanctity of human life and how precious life is in the sight of God. For the last 10 years, in a very intense way, and certainly it's been going on for decades, but we have been battling in a fierce and real way against the false teaching, and this is what it is. We have been battling against the false teaching of same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage is an attack on the Word of God. It is an attack on the design of God. And we find ourselves and will, I believe, for decades to come, defending the biblical view of marriage, the biblical view that marriage is between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Just over the last few months, and some of you may be aware of this, some of you may not, there has been a kind of firestorm, a huge debate taking place at Wheaton College that has ignited a debate not only in the nation but around the world. A professor, a female professor at Wheaton College suggested that Muslims and Christians serve the very same God. And so that question, do Muslims and Christians serve the same God? Is he, is Allah and Jehovah God of Scripture, are they the very same God? And Philosophers have entered the debate. Theologians have entered the debate. There have been all kinds of articles written on it. And then there is the constant threat, it seems like we always face, from liberal theology, and by that I mean those who attack the credibility and authenticity of the Word of God and want to make the Bible simply the words of men and not the very words of God himself. I think that every year, almost without exception, I read articles of pastors and other seemingly well-indoctrinated Christians who have totally abandoned the faith, who have totally walked away from it. It just seems so consistent. 2015 is a good example. Let me just share with you a few of the articles that I read. About a year ago, 
I was reading an article about or from a man who is now a leading secular humanist thinker and a leading agnostic. And he tells in this article that I read that he is a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, took many Bible courses at Moody, went out and handed out tracts years ago when he went to Moody, uh, and went on all kinds of evangelistic campaigns as he called them. He worked at the rescue mission in Chicago, and now he said he has simply, through knowledge, realized that he was believing something that wasn't true. And now has just abandoned the faith. Not too long ago, I was reading another article about a man, and I believe this was in the Huffington Post. He's a graduate of Asbury College, the Methodist College, and said that he used to be a quote-unquote, this is his quote, a fundamentalist Christian in the Methodist Wesleyan tradition, but now he has abandoned the whole thing. And he said he now despises his words, despises the arguments of evangelical Christians. Read an article, I think, about six months ago about, and it was a man who now embraces fully evolution. Used to be, in his words, a creationist. But now he said, I just can no longer believe in a young earth, can no longer believe in a literal interpretation of the book of Genesis, and he is a full-out uh, evolutionist. And what is interesting is in the article, he says his parents brought him up in the ministry of Answers in Genesis. And he was schooled in that. In fact, he tells in this article that he used to mow lawns. He was so passionate about Answers in Genesis and this new creation museum, which has now been there for quite a while, but he said he was mowing lawns and giving everything that he made mowing lawns to this new creation museum that was going to be built. And now, quote, he sees the foolishness of what he did. Now, this is not new. This is not new. It has been happening and will continue to happen. But what we need to know is these people influence other people. These people influence other people people. And that is why we must continually be on guard against false teachers and false teaching. I don't care what their background is. I don't care if they used to say they went to some conservative evangelical college. Doesn't matter. We need to protect the church. Now, let's go back to Peter himself for just a few minutes here. Peter, as some of you may know, suffered martyrdom, was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior. But he was martyred near the end of Nero's persecution. So 2 Peter appears to have been written shortly before his death. So most conservative Bible scholars date the book of 2 Peter somewhere around A.D. 67 or 68. 
Peter does not say where he was when he wrote this epistle. But since his death is imminent, and he was martyred in Rome, in all probability he wrote this while he was in prison prior to his execution. And I say that to you not to just throw academic information at you, but because I think it's interesting. If you were in jail, if you were in prison, and you were about to go to the electric chair or to a firing squad, what would you write? If you knew that you were near the end of your life, and you could write to your, let's say you could write to your children and to your grandchildren, what would you write to them? What would you tell them at the very end of your life? What would burden your heart just before you died? That's what Peter is doing, and that's why this letter is important to us. Now, unlike 1 Peter, he does not name his recipients, but in the commentaries that I read, the recipients of this letter are likely the same people to whom he wrote 1 Peter. So what we have is Peter wrote 1 Peter, as you know, to comfort and instruct and strengthen those Christians who were facing persecution. The persecution under the Emperor Nero, a persecution that was there and a, a, a persecution that appeared to be intensifying on the horizon. In this letter, Peter addresses the even more deadly threat of false teachers who would arise within the church. So his first letter is to strengthen and comfort those going through persecution. His second letter is to warn the people about the rise of false teachers among them. The apostle warned believers to be on the alert against their deceiving lies. And his vivid and incisive description of heretics and apostates is comparable only to the book of Jude. So there is a strong correlation between 2 Peter and the book of Jude. Well, our second point tonight is to those who are saved. Peter begins his second letter by identifying himself as the author and immediately calling himself a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 1. So he begins by identifying himself as a servant. Peter humbly and gratefully placed himself in the position of submission, duty, and obedience to his Lord, to his Master. And there's that word again, submission. Such an important word in the Christian faith. And to call himself a servant meant that he was duty-bound to his master to obey him no matter what the cost. And I think that's a beautiful thought. That to call himself a servant meant that he was duty-bound to obey his master no matter what the cost. And he writes that and says that in a more realistic way than I could or you could, because he is actually facing 
death itself, a death by execution for his faith. And he calls himself an apostle, which is important here, because he is identifying himself as one officially sent forth by Christ himself, as divinely commissioned, or as a divinely commissioned witness of the resurrection of Christ with the authority to, com to proclaim this truth. So he is speaking with the authority of an apostle. Now I've gone over this with you before, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But the office of apostle is not an ongoing office. There were 12 apostles plus Paul. So there were 12 apostles plus Paul, and then the office ceased upon their deaths. They had a very special place. Now even Paul calls himself one who was untimely born. He saw the living Lord, according to 1 Corinthians 15, on the road to Damascus. And there he saw the Lord, and there he was commissioned. And so that is really the definition of an apostle. They had this special commission. They were with Christ, and they were sent forth by Christ. So he speaks as a servant and as an apostle. And Peter writes to those who would receive the same salvation that he and the other apostles had received. I want you to think about that with me tonight. He is writing to those who would receive the same salvation that he and the other apostles had received. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I want that to grab you tonight. I want you to take this letter very personally. He has written it not only to these recipients, but he has written it to you. You have received, you have obtained a faith, a salvation of equal standing with ours. Folks, there is no such thing as an elite group of Christians. We are all the recipients of God's free gift of salvation. From the apostles all the way to those who are redeemed and saved today. Chris mentioned the person saved at the beacon of hope. They received the same salvation that the apostles did. And I want you to think about that with me tonight. You have received the same salvation as all the apostles. You think of the apostles. You think of Peter. You think of Paul. You think of James. You think of the other apostles. And they lived for their salvation. They died for their salvation. All of them did. And you have the exact same salvation. That ought to overwhelm us. I don't think I grasp it. I'm not sure that you grasp it. We have received the same exact free gift of salvation that all the apostles lived and died for. It is ours. It is ours in Christ. To those, I write to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And as I was studying this week, is just one of those things that overflows from your heart. I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know it well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. It has always been that way. It is that way now, and it will always be that way until the Lord returns. We have received this free gift of salvation for one reason and one reason only, because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what he says. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know we've gone over this many times, but we could never repeat it enough. Salvation is the great exchange. When we come to Christ, he takes away our sins and he grants us or imputes to us, as we say in theology, he gives to us, transfers to us, his own righteousness. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The only reason you're going to heaven is because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In your own righteousness, you could never get there. The only reason you are forgiven, the only reason you have a right relationship with God the Father, the only reason you can sing, I am redeemed, is because you stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We think, as I have preached before, one of the great verses in all the Bible has to be 2 Corinthians 5.21. says it so well. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, in verse 2, in Peter's version of this familiar salutation, he reminds his readers that true saints of God live in the realm of grace and peace. Verse 2 is very familiar. It's familiar to Paul, familiar to Peter. We see these words in various forms in the New Testament. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And that's how he begins his letter. It's as if I invite you, as God's people, as those who have a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, to you I say, may grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants the results of our salvation to come to us to be experienced by us in unending, abundant streams. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And the grammatical structure is that there is, may it be multiplied to you over and over and over again. When Annette sang, we heard this wonderful definition of grace tonight. And it was very good. Grace is God's free, unmerited favor towards sinners, which grants those who believe the gospel complete forgiveness forever through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, grace to you. May you live 
in the exhilarating freedom that you are completely forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future in Christ. And peace, peace with God, and peace from God in all life circumstances is the effect of grace flowing out of the forgiveness that God has given to all who are saved. If you are saved, if you know Jesus as your Savior, God says to you by his Holy Spirit in his word, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And all of this grace and peace comes in and through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We understand this as a people. We understand this as Bible students. To be saved, you can't just know about God. You need to know God. You need to know him in a personal, real, and saving way. And in essence, that's what Peter is saying. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So our salvation involves not merely knowing the truth about Christ, but actually knowing him as Savior and Lord through the truth of his word. Well, let me try to put this all together tonight. I have been working with our elders and of course here we have vocational elders which we call pastors and non-vocational or lay elders and we've been working through the biblical responsibilities of what an elder is and though those responsibilities are multifaceted excuse me one of the things that we found, and I thought this was so interesting and shared some articles with the men about this, one of the main responsibilities of an elder is to protect the sheep from false teachers and false teaching. Isn't that interesting? You say, isn't an elder supposed to shepherd the sheep? Yes, he is. Absolutely, he is supposed to shepherd the sheep. But as we take the whole of the New Testament, one of the primary ways that an elder shepherds the sheep of God is by protecting them, being alert to the false teachers and the false teaching, not only that is out there, but that is within the church. And when I say within the church, I'm not simply talking about First Baptist Church, although that is always a possibility but I'm talking about in the body of Christ generally, in those churches in various places where people are denying what they once held to, that are teaching things that are no longer in line with the word of God. So I want to end with this statement. As we study Second Peter, let's determine in our hearts that we will proclaim the truth of God's word and courageously defend it against all false teaching and all false teachers. Let's determine together. Let's determine together as a church that as we study Second Peter, that in our hearts 
we will determine that we will proclaim the truth. We will proclaim the truth of God's word over and over again, and we will, by God's grace and help, courageously defend it against all false teaching and all false teachers. Let's pray together. Father, help us. The truth is precious. It is only through the truth of your word that we understand this great salvation, a salvation that is the same that all the apostles had. And Lord, when we think of the wonder and beauty and amazement of our salvation, we must do everything that we can do to protect the gospel. We must do everything that we can to protect the precious teaching of what salvation really is in Christ. Help us, O Lord, to be courageous men and courageous women, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.